Hi, this is Theral Timpson. I'd like to invite you to sign up for our newsletter at www.fivewiththeral.com to be notified of each new 5 o'clock podcast, as well as new articles coming out each week. Thanks for listening, and enjoy today's show. Who was Karl Marx? We talk with a recent biographer next on the program. Hello, everyone. This is 5 o'clock. I'm Theral Timpson. Just this week, some running for president of the United States called others Marxists. Marx has become a boogeyman for the right and core curriculum on the left. But who was this person? Where did he come from? What were his influences? And what impact have Marx's ideas had on our history? What sway do they still hold over us? Today I'm speaking with Jonathan Sperber, historian and author of Karl Marx, A 19th Century Life. Jonathan is Professor Emeritus at the University of Missouri. Jonathan Sperber, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. This is a wonderful book. I'm discovering why Marx, for me, I think he was one of the two major influences on modern thought, along with Charles Darwin. And I'm, I've covered Darwin a lot in my other podcasts. So this is a chance to overturn some rocks and, and get into Marx's life. But why Marx for you? Um, why Marx for me? I've been a historian of, of, for most of my career of 19th century Europe. And I guess the specific thing that got me to talk about Marx was when I was writing a book about the revolutions of 1848 in Western Germany. Um, it was, in fact, in February of 1988. I was a fellow of the Alexander von Humboldt Stiftung at the University of Cologne. I was sitting in the university library. I was reading this collection of sources, which has the absolutely horrid name, Heinische Briefe und Akten zur Geschichte der politischen Bewegung. Um, like I said, <coughs> it's one of those German things. And I was reading a um, speech that Karl Marx gave to the Cologne Democratic Society in August of 1848, in which he condemned the class struggle, said the idea of the dictatorship of a single class was nonsense, and called on different social classes to make concessions to each other to support a revolutionary movement. And as I read that, I remember thinking to myself, whoa, wait a minute. This is not the Karl Marx that I know. Uh, and I realized that I really needed to think about this some more, and in fact, to write a biography at some point about Marx. It took a while, but we moved slowly in academia. And I did eventually. And I would say the main point of my biography is to rethink about how we, to rethink the way we understand Marx. Uh, for a long time, and I think this reflects the impact of the Cold War and the massive political and military confrontations of the 20th century, uh, people saw Marx as a contemporary. Um, he was either this brilliant, this brilliant thinker who understood perfectly the, the nature of today's world and its future <laughs> developments, or he was this evil genius behind the most horrible mass murders and dictatorships of the 20th century. Um, I guess you could say if you liked him, if you liked Marx, he was Nelson Mandela. If you didn't like him, he was Saddam Hussein. Mm. Um, I want to think about Marx differently, uh, neither as Mandela nor Hussein, but someone more like Martin Luther, um, another very famous German intellectual, 
who had an enormous shaping influence on the modern world, uh, but one whose ideas, um, and I say this with apologies to any Lutherans in the audience, uh, things like the justification by faith alone um, are now pretty out of date. And it's more interesting to understand Marx, not as our contemporary, but as a figure of a past world, which no longer, in a lot of ways, no longer exists. Okay. And, and so that was make, the viewpoint that I started with. Okay. So what we've done today is we've sort of made our own Marx, Marx in our own image, um, and used him for this and that political purpose, particularly in the 20th century. And yes. you want to say, uh, let's go back and look at the real thing. Yes, that's exactly right. So so let's jump into his early life. Um, he, yes. He's born in Trier, and his dad is really an Enlightenment figure. And his dad is a Jewish person who actually converts um, to Christianity and specifically to a certain kind of Enlightenment-informed uh, Christianity called deism um, so that he can get a job. Now, he has had a job— under the French government, the French came in and took over Trier for a while, but then they were kicked out, and his dad wouldn't have had a job unless he converted over to Christianity. And um, the main theme in early Marx, uh, Marx's life is this heavy authoritarian Prussian government that took over when the French left. Um, so take us there, set the stage uh, as to why Marx is— uh, you know, the formation of Marx's life there. All right. So um, we say Trier is a, was a city in Western Germany in the old regime before 1789. It was this very sleepy uh, provincial town, which frankly had reached its high point in the third century AD when it had been the capital of the Roman empire and spent about the next 1600 years going downhill. Um, it was, seized by the French in 1794. They ruled it for 20 decades. Um, they abolished the old regime society of order. They seized the property of the Catholic Church. Trier was an intensely Catholic city. Um, in the age of the Reformation, in fact, the bishop had tried to become a Protestant and the people of Trier wouldn't let him. Um, <laughs> they seized the property of the church. They sold it. Um, they created a completely different social order. Um, this included, one of the things that's included was equality under the law for all religions. Marx's father, Heinrich, who was Jewish, had an opportunity for the first time in his life to become involved in different occupations. He, in fact, studied law. He was the very last graduate of the school of law the French had created in nearby Koblenz. Um, so a complete upheaval. Um, and then as a result of Napoleon's uh, ill-fated invasion of Russia in 1812, the French rule over Western Germany and frankly over most of Europe came to an end. Fier came under the uh, rule of the Kingdom of Prussia as did all of Western Germany. This was not a happy state of affairs. Um, the Prussians authoritarian bureaucrats uh, who still had an old regime society of orders in many ways did not get along with the Rhinelanders who liked these new ideas of equality under the law. Um, and the Rhinelanders were mostly Catholics, the people, uh, Prussians, mostly Protestants. There was a lot of bad blood between the two. Uh, Prussian rule was rather oppressive in terms of things like raising taxes and drafting young men into the military, telling farmers how they could and couldn't use the forests. Um, and there was a lot of opposition, it would be fair to say, 
to Prussian rule. Uh, Trier was something of a, a hothouse of that. And during the revolution of 1848, um, they rose up, uh, smashed the eagle, the symbol of Prussian rule, hauled down the Prussian flag, assaulted the Prussian garrison. Um, actually, it reached the point really of an open insurrection, which the garrison responded to by turning their artillery on the city and threatening to blow it up um, unless the Trier that inhabitants came in. So it was this this uh, this background, I think it's fair to say, of real unrest and discontent with Prussian rule that gave um, Marx some of his ideas about revolution. Uh, that, his, that 1848 revolution, of course, is yes. the one that Marx wrote his Communist Manifesto for. Yes. And indeed. that he and was always one, hoping would be the revolution. Right. It was. He was the one where he was really involved very actively as a revolutionary. The one time in his life he could do that. Um, now, this attitude was only magnified and also transformed by Marx's, Marx's study at the university. Uh, briefly, a year at Bonn and then on to the University of Berlin, which was the center of the thought of the famous philosopher Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Hegel was already dead at the time. He died in the cholera ap ep epidemic of 1831. But his followers, particularly his more radical followers, whom contemporaries called the young Hegelians, were a very important influence. And Marx, who was supposed to go there to study law and become an attorney like his father, um, was uh, altogether too attracted by the idea of philosophy. Um, and to his father's immense dismay, um, spent all his time writing philosophical treaties rather than doing anything practical like preparing for his bar exams. Um, he be, fell, fell into, the, into the world of the young Hegelians, particularly to a man named Bruno Bauer, who became his mentor. Um, these young Hegelians took Hegel's thought and reinterpreted it in a radical direction, um, Republican, atheistic, democratic. Uh, and this just added to Marx's feelings of revolution. You had one line in there about the young Hegelians. They would start um, arguing in one direction and end up in a pretty radicalized direction. For instance, they might start arguing um, for religion or on a book about Christ and then end up um, as atheists with an atheist yeah, position. You know, every, every single one of the young Hegelians was a Protestant theologian. Um, and their original their original idea was that they were going to use Hegel's ideas to engage in what we today call the, the higher criticism of the Bible. They were going to read um, the Bible through this Hegelian lens and try and figure out what elements of the Old and New Testaments actually refer to actual historical events in ancient Palestine. Um, and what they ended up deciding, and this is a very Protestant thing to do to clear away um, all this stuff that's accreted over time and, and get to the original pure meaning of, say, Jesus's words. And what they ended up doing when, when they did that, that once they had cleared away all the accretions, they found there was nothing left. Um, and they ended up um, becoming atheists, basically. Um, now, the, um, 1941 is kind of an important year for Marx. Um, he's yes. just finishing up uh, his doctorate, really, I think. Yes, um, yes PhD in philosophy. PhD in philosophy, yeah. And he planned to be an academic. I mean, this was the direction he was yes. going, right? Um, he's he's engaged to um, this young woman, Jenny, um, who's like his father's best friend and his best friend's daughter. Um, and two important people die, which changed the course of his life. And and I think this really gets at the nub 
of your whole idea with the book is the way that, you know, events in the 19th century um, shaped him. Um, so can you talk about this year? Yeah. All right. Um, one of the people who died in 1838 was his father, Heinrich Marx. He died of tuberculosis, which killed four of Marx's siblings and ultimately Marx himself. You know, in the 19th, um, tuberculosis is an absolutely horrible disease until very recently. Um, in the first half of the 20th century, just as to give you one example, before the uh, development of antibiotics that could cure it, more people died from tuberculosis than died in both world wars, which I've always found a really interesting statistic. Um, and the thing about being and going into these professions in 19th century Germany, especially, but more broadly in 19th century Europe, was that it would take you a long time. It would take you years and years um, to become a professor you'd go through, or, or, or a lawyer, you'd go through all these phases of basically unpaid apprenticeships, and you'd have to count on your family to support you. And then Marx's father died, so he no longer had any support and basically no longer had any money. Um, uh, condition which was chronic for about the next 20 or so years. Um, and the other person who died was a man named Edward Gans, um, a professor at the University of Berlin who was Hegel's chief disciple, um, whom Marx admired tremendously. Marx um, took some passages from Gans's work in the Communist Manifesto. He died quite suddenly at a young age of a stroke. Um, this left Marx dependent on this um, rather acerbic figure, Bruno Bauer. Um, Bauer and sort of, he was dependent on Bauer's patronage to uh, make his way through the academic establishment in Prussia. And this is so unfortunate, Bauer was fired for being an atheist, um, which left Marx basically without any, any way to pursue his academic career. Right, and this Bruno happened to a lot of young Hegelians. It was a very <sighs> difficult fate that they met. Yeah, so Bauer was down down in what Heidelberg, right, as a professor, bon, and he bon. was or Bonn, Bonn, and he was yes. pre preparing a place for Marx, and they were yes. even corresponding about what course Marx was going to teach. He was going to teach a course in logic, and and Marx was even preparing his course. Um, now, okay, the other major figure I was thinking who died in Marx's life was um, Wilhelm Friedrich, the Kaiser of Prussia, dies yes. Friedrich the Third. Okay, so Friedrich the Fourth comes in, and he is yes. not um, near as friendly to the young Hegelians or yeah. to the Enlightenment in general, right? Yeah. It's British, a return yeah. to what's called the Awakening, and also this one figure in government—I can't remember his name—who had been sort of protecting the young Hegelians, protecting them in the ac yes. academy, um, is now out, Minister of Culture. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, so Friedrich Wilhelm III, was, uh, who was king in the days of Napoleon, um, was sort of this authoritarian figure, but also something of a patron of Hegel and his ideas. Uh, Friedrich Wilhelm IV was, um, as you said, an, an adherent of the Awakening, pretty close to what we today call born-again Christians, or the German version of that. And all this stuff about Hegel, which he regarded as all being atheism, um, and subversion. They just wanted nothing to do with it. Um, Bauer, who was rather a nervy individual, who felt that he should be named the professor of Protestant theology at a Prussian university so he could publicly assert atheism. Um, he and Marx, in fact, were preparing a scholarly journal to be called the Archives of Atheism. Um, and let's just say Bauer came into conflict with the new monarch. And because Bauer, Bauer was just this sort of guy who 
would not stop and was very acerbic and public and determined. Um, he just did himself in. Uh, he lost his job. He refused to accept any compromises. Um, and it put Marx in a very awkward spot. Um, although I said this was a problem that all the young Hegelians faced, um, which was that they were increasingly advocating radical subversive ideas, which made it very difficult for them to have a job as a in German academia as a professor, which is a, sort of even today a higher, very high ranking civil servant, sort of like the German equivalent of a GS-17 in America. And so this, this just would have been very difficult if you were going to be a subversive, godless and subversive. Yeah, I guess I was surprised by the level that Bauer took it and Marx. At one point, you, yes. you give an anecdote that they're seen going into one of the small towns around Bonn. Um, what yeah. on donkeys? Maybe on Good Friday, um, imitating yes. Christ. <laughs> and I'm like, wow! If you're trying to get this job or hold on to these jobs, this seems like really provocative. Or as you say, publishing um, outright atheism. I mean, one thinks of Hume, which was an earlier time, um, who was an atheist, but you know, he, he probably wouldn't have done that to get a job. Um, but you know, Hume was a very discreet figure, very yeah. much not like Bauer. Right. Um, but at the same time, I mean, this does seem provocative, but at the same time, it just shows you um, what they were dealing with. And in our day and age, it just seems crazy that the government would be in charge of this and there would be this heavy handedness and that these professors couldn't say what they wanted. And so Marx has to, he can't get this job, he has to turn to journalism. And so he end up he ends up working for um, the, a new paper that started, which is sort of a, a you know a, a second paper in town, an anti-establishment paper, the Rhineland News, um, and ends up on the editorial staff. But there he's going to run into the same problems. Um, but that also sets the path in his life of becoming a journalist. Um, but there again, he's going to be pushing against the state. He is indeed. I just wanted something about Marx as a journalist. Um, when Marx was asked on official forms for his occupation, he just wrote he was a doctor of philosophy, which is, of course, not an occupation. But if we say, what did Marx do for a living? The answer is he was a journalist. Mm -hmm. um, if you, there's this enormous project, the Mega, which is a collection of everything that Marx and Engels ever wrote, including the um, notes they scribbled in the backs of envelopes. Uh, it's been going on for like 50 years now, and it's still not finished, but it's an immense thing. And what you can see is that the journalism was more than, far more than everything else Marx published in his entire life put together. Hmm. Marx was above all a journalist, and many of his crucial ideas came from his journalistic writing. So this was the way he earned the living. Uh, and of course, his first job on this Rhineland news in 1841-42 uh, uh, was largely about irritating the Prussian government, um, calling for freedom of speech, calling for free trade, um, sort of a radical idea at the time. Uh, well, interestingly enough, free trade, right? This is the former communist. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, no. Marx, as, you know, in fact, actually, he actually, when he was editor, he wrote a few essays about communism. He said, you know, communism is not a real problem. If the workers rise up, the army will just shoot them. Um, <laughs> very interesting because somebody who a few years later is going to write the Yeah, I almost uh, fell off my chair when I read that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's part of this idea of seeing Marx in his own time and context. And, uh, so um, 
he developed all these radical ideas um, and uh, the government forced him out basically and it didn't um, he he with some other young Hegelians left the country and moved to Paris and started on a whole new political career as an exile and increasingly revolutionary. Yeah, so let's get into that. That we we yeah. always think of him as communist and, and revolutionary. So how did he come to this? You know, um, Paris, Paris, um, Paris of the eighteen forties was like this just astonishing place, uh, the largest city in continental Europe, um, second or third largest city in the entire world, filled with all sorts of stuff going on. Uh, politically, France was then a constitutional monarchy, the so-called July monarchy. And, um, well, there wasn't absolute freedom of speech and freedom of the press. There was a lot. And all these different political viewpoints were being expressed. Um, supporters of the previous dynasty, uh, more conservative, the liberal supporters of the monarchy, advocates of a republic, revolutionaries who wanted to go back to the days of uh, the good old days of Robespierre, um, people who were envisaging different kinds of social arrangements. Um, we might call them communists, although they're a lot more like communards. They're people who wanted to form communes and sort of utopian socialist ideas, some of which are actually, they actually tried to form right here in Missouri, which I've always found sort of amusing. Um, and there's just an immense political ferment in which Marx became involved. And as he was becoming involved in this thing and going to meetings of revolutionary secret societies, um, he was also studying more intensively Hegel and using the young Hegelians, he was studying Hegel intensively. He was reading the works of what we call the classical economists, people like Adam Smith, uh, Smith's greatest disciple, David Ricardo, um, other people, John and uh, James and John Stuart Mill, um, and so on. He's mostly, in, he didn't speak English yet, so he was mostly reading them in French translation. Um, and he was he was also reading uh, de Tocqueville, particularly his yeah, well, you know, reading Tocqueville as yeah well, his yes. study of America because this is where he got yes. the idea that you know different religions live freely under the law. Yeah, yeah, and 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 what actually what Marx did was extremely interesting as he written. We want to realize this because the attitude of economists back then was quite different from that of economists today. Most economists today are eternal optimists. Everything is going to get better. The economy is going to grow. Things are going to, as long as the government stays out of the economy, of course, it's going to be, everything's going to be terrific. The free market will make everybody wealthier. Um, this is actually a fairly recent attitude. It's really not until after the Second World War that economists get into this mood for a long time. And this is particularly true in the first half of the 19th century. Economists were deeply pessimistic. Uh, that's why Carlyle made this famous comment where he referred to uh, political economy as the dismal science, because they saw a future of impoverishment, um, economic decline, what they, uh, Ricardo would call the steady state, when the economy would simply cease to grow and stagnate. Um, his contemporary Malthus saw this like large portions of the population starving to death. It's a very dismal uh, future. And um, Marx took this up. He increasingly interpreted the economists, he interpreted their picture of capitalism in the same way the young Hegelians had interpreted religion. Mm -hmm. For the young Hegelians, God was a uh, being which was created out of the very best attributes of humanity. Um, and was, as they said, was alienated from humans, was objectified in an 
an alienated being, another being who stood beyond them. Humans had lost all their good, their good uh, qualities that had become sinners, and um, all their good qualities were in this powerful being who stood up against them, which was God. Marx developed a very similar view of capitalism in which workers took all their labor and their positive cooperation in working on the world to create them, working on nature to create human subsistence, and they alienated it um, and put it under the control of capitalists. And their the product of their labor, the commodity, became an alien being, one which stood over and against them and controlled their lives and dominated them. And so it is very interesting to understand that Marx developed his ideas about communism essentially from the atheistic notions of the young Hegelians that he had studied at the university in Berlin. Yeah, I I, I find this fascinating. Um, And so he starts to do this with this um, criticism of Hegel's philosophy of law, right? which was based on Feuerbach's uh, uh, criticism of yes. of the philosophy on theology, right? Yes. And so, it's, like you say, it's it's rather than uh, alienation by projecting onto God, it's um, alienation by projecting on. Um, you say to capitalism in this essay, it was projection on projection onto the state, and this is where he arrives at the proletariat, which yes. what you say is that's that's similar for him. To like, um, I think Feuerbach used self consciousness or consciousness, and 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 Hegel would have said absolute spirit. Yeah, yeah. The, the proletariat becomes for Marx the social class which can um, resolve all these issues of alienation because it has none of its own property. It's the social class which will carry out this enormous political and actually philosophical philosophical movement to abolish the distinction between individual and society, between civil society and the state, to create this, frankly, sort of utopian uh, vision of, of a future humanity. Um, the proletariat will be, well, first Marx asserts that it's communism that will do it. And then he goes on to assert that it is the proletariat which will bring this about. Um, so there's a whole long Sort of this involves, you might say, it's 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 Marx's effort to solve some of the crucial problems of Hegel's philosophy, um, which the young Hegelians had first addressed, mm-hmm. and doing so as as informed by his study of the French Revolution, and by his study of the classical uh, political economists. Okay, so I think this is where I don't follow Marx. Um, I mean, this seems uh, to well, be the <laughs> yeah, this seems to be the real kernel here. Um, of Marx's thought, and that is honing in on the proletariat um, yeah. as as being this sort of um, important kind of, uh, emblem for him. Um, yes, um, and um, and you do see how this carries on politically, um, where you know even today Democrats sort of you know focusing on um, um, the the poor. I mean, they used to. Now we see our parties changing. Um, and then the new the new liberals taking this and fo- using it to focus on other minorities, uh, right? And this yeah. becoming yeah, you could you could make that argument that particularly since the days of the new left in the nineteen sixties, people who want to have a revolution have been looking for a new social class or new social group to be to be the revolution to be the uh, the bearer of revolutionary ideas having decided that the workers are too busy like driving their cars and watching tv um to do that anymore 
Um, and, you know, and there was in, in, my, in my youth, and I'm, I'm a child of the 1960s, I hate to admit, there was talk about the third world and about racial, racial minorities who would be this new revolutionary group. Feminists decided it was going to be women. Um, there'd be all these, all these, um, you know, or uh, these days, maybe it's gays and transgender people. And there, there, there was this whole, this whole streak, um, the whole story of, of like late 20th century radicalism, but there's whole one streak, which wants to find some social group who's got a privileged position and will be sort of the vanguard of a new society. Yes. Yes. So, so I follow that. What I don't follow is how that works out. <laughs> you know, oh, well, it, it, you know, I, I, one answer is, 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 is in a lot of ways, um, so Marx envisaged the proletariat in this way. And to his credit, he actually hung out with the real live workers at the time who tended to have ideas that Marx regarded as wrong. And Marx's response was to often treat them with contempt and to say they just hadn't developed far enough. Marx represented the real, the real workers, the ones who were not yet in existence, but with the growth of capitalism would come into existence. Um, and and, and he, he knew what they were going to think in the future um, because he, he'd studied political economy. He saw how the way things were going. And, and so this became his way of, of, of approaching this sort of question. Uh, there's a whole history of that in Marxist ideas. Uh, Lenin takes this one step further and says, it's not just the workers haven't developed foreigners, they're never going to get it right. And so we intellectuals have to step in and tell the workers what to think properly. Uh, this leads in a lot of really nasty directions in the 20th century. Um, but that was how I think Marx wanted to deal with this issue, um, was by saying, well, you know, if the real life workers with whom he was very active and a member of the, um, the secret society, the League of the Just, which became the Communist League, which commissioned him to write the famous Communist Manifesto. So Marx really hung out with these sorts of people um, who were, to be honest, mostly uh, journeymen uh, tailors and shoemakers um, in places like Paris and London, uh, German journeymen tailors and shoemakers who couldn't find work in Germany and had moved all over Europe um, to Paris, to Zurich, to Brussels, to London, in fact, to New York City, uh, which by 1850 was the third largest German city in the entire world. Um, and they had, um, and so Marx hung out with these people and um, sort of was involved with their secret societies and the political leadership. And whenever they disagreed with him, which happened a lot because Marx uh, was the sort of person who wasn't really happy with people who didn't agree with him, um, he would just sort of say that they were backward and didn't understand the future of the working class, the way it was going to develop, but he did. Hmm. Okay. So pulling back out from the book a little bit now, um, yes. I, I think you totally set the stage as to why, you know, what led him into, into uh, his work and why he did what he did. I mean, what really hit me was just this authoritarian Prussian state, yes. you know, yes. and, and he really came from a Jewish heritage and they had no rights. Um, and then he couldn't even, I mean, he was a smart guy and he couldn't even talk about, he couldn't think, you couldn't think in that regime. Yeah. Um, I mean, he ended up in London, right? Where he could think. Um, right. but coming back to your core thesis that he was a product of the 19th century and projected those themes on the age, I think that's, yeah. that's really obvious. Um, but you know, we were just talking about how some, uh, some of his core ideas have lived on in, in say, um, liberal um, politics. Yeah. Um, do you think his ideas have had staying power 
in our times? Um, and if so, why? If he was a product of the 19th century, why did these ideas live on? You know, um, what I would say about Marx's ideas is that um, they began to lose a lot of their purchase in the later 20th century. Frankly, in, in private, even people who led the communist regimes of the Eastern Bloc might admit, they would never say this publicly, of course, that Marx was sort of out of date. And they had their own ideas about how they were going to get to their communist societies, which usually involved more science and technology than class struggle. And of course, then, you know, 1989 happens and basically communism across the world comes to an end. And, you know, I would fair to say today in the world, we have two openly communist countries, Cuba and North Korea. Um, and you've got places like China, which purport to be communist, but it's a, but it's a communism with um, large corporations, a stock market. Um, and a lot of wage labor and a government which is very big on um, ensuring unions don't actually have any power. So, you know, something so, tells me. I mean, Marx, Marx was such a free thinker, and he was so against this heavy state. Something tells no. me he would not have been happy with you know the Russia no. of the 1960s no, no, or even no. China today. No, I don't think so. But I, I think what happens is this tended to like um, this tended to bring a lot of that Marxist stuff to an end. Um, it, there was a, a revival after 2008 when there was a global, you know, there's a global economic crisis, which seems a lot like Marx's ideas about the way capitalism would go through pe periods of recurring instability. Um, markets were not perfectly self self regulating. There were periods of collapse and breakdown. Um, you know, in 2008, really seemed to fit that pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of those ideas of Marx do seem to live on. Um, but, uh, uh, so I, I wouldn't deny that, but I, I would say that like they're, they're definitely not what they used to be. Okay. All right. Um, now let me push back on historicism in general. Since I have okay. you. <laughs> Since yeah, no, I, and I, a lot of people get very irked by historicism. Uh, well, I, I certainly see the power. I mean, to just see the context here is fascinating, and it's you know, it's it's great. And you know, these two historicists, Mark and Marx and Darwin, just seem they just seem to dominate uh, modern thought. I mean, uh, you know, I we don't have time to go into all that. Um, that's an ongoing project for me. Um, but just to push back on historicism, because I have a historian here, um, what about ideas being real and universal? Okay, so yeah. here's an example. Right. Um, could yeah. you see? Uh, would you say that when we got there talking about, about um, the kernel of Marx's ideas in the proletariat, I see a strong thread uh, from Christ's teachings, Christianity there. Um, basically, you know what you've uh, done to the least of them, you've done to me. Um, so, what about the ideas? Uh, the ideas in general are real and universal. Isn't Marx dealing with some universal concepts? Well, um, first, I, I want something about Marx and Christianity and, 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 uh, and Judaism. You know, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said um, that Marx came from a long line of rabbis or he was a, a modern version of an Old Testament prophet, I wouldn't I wouldn't need the royalties for my books. Um, but we had to realize <laughs> Marx was baptized at the age of five. He had a completely Protestant religious education. The very first written work of Marx was from his um, so-called Abitur, the German college preparatory high school um, graduation exam. 
um, in his religion classes, interpretation of a passage of the gospel according to St. John. This is a guy who's actually really steeped in one particular version, uh, sort of liberal theological version of 19th century Protestantism, uh, which always seemed to me much more influential in Marx's intellectual world than um, Judaism was. And I guess it it would seem to me that, um, that that Marx's intellectual antecedents lie more in the Enlightenment, which was, you know, um, a movement which is rather skeptical of enlightened religion, best skeptical of enlightened of um, revealed religion, and often rather hostile to it um, than it was in ideas of Christianity. Um, so I guess that is me being a historicist, which is somebody who places ideas in the context of the time in which they were first formulated and often sees that different eras have very different kinds of um, ideas. Um, I don't mind saying that. I am a, a, a student of a student of a student of the famous German historicist Friedrich Meinecke. Um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand by that. Um, I'm going to say I, I'm more skeptical of the idea of universal ideas that run throughout human civilization. And I find it more helpful to understand ideas in the context of the time in which they emerged. Um, and they can they can be transmitted through time, but they often they change a lot and have very different meanings as one gets into different societies, uh, different forms of different cultural structures and intellectual structures, um, different results of science. Um, a lot of things get changed a lot after uh, Darwin publishes on the origin of species, for instance, since you mentioned Charles Darwin um, there. And, and I think we can we interpret them very differently as a result of that. Okay, so today in America, Marx's name often gets thrown around uh, quite a bit. Um, yes. Uh, you know, just this week, uh, we heard Trump, uh, you know, uh, yes. call people Marxists. Um, it can stir the base. It seems Democrats. Uh, it seems to me Democrats are a bit sensitive and unwilling to defend Marx in America. Yeah, well, um, I, I know, but this, this is just so ridiculous. I know. Um, so he's denouncing a political party led by this moderate uh, president, moderate Democratic guy with like decades long ties to finance. Um, you know, from a state Delaware, which is sort of the, the, the corporate center of American financial, large financial corporations. And to describe this as somebody who wants to overthrow capitalism is just like it's some it's in some other world. Um, it's like it's become this it's like a boogeyman. It, uh, it, it's 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 a phrase which is incre- just been like emptied of pretty much all its meaning. Um, and and uh, uh, describing uh, these people in that terms, even 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 the people on the, the extreme left wing of the Democratic Party, somebody like Senator Sanders. Or uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, uh, the very um, what shall we say uh, articulate representative, uh, Congress Congresswoman from New York City. Uh, these are people who um, uh, mostly want to see uh, capitalist society with a large social welfare program. Um, the idea that they were want want to end private property is just so, so, so totally like so totally out of this world. Um, I think this is like a late heritage of the Cold War uh, for a really long time in America, from like 1949 to 1980 on for four decades. Communism was the enemy. Uh, So communism and Marxism became official bogeymen. And even though, you know, communism basically doesn't exist anywhere in the world today, it's still okay to call your political enemy a Marxist without it really having a whole lot of meaning anymore. 
Uh, but but would you agree that Marxism is somewhat foundational to liberal ideas today through the new Marxists and some of the ideas uh, we're no, talking? No, no, I, I really, I really, I really would not. Um, and I would say if you look at um, look at the economic ideas, they tend to go back to John Maynard Keynes, um, who represented the, sort of one uh, came out of the so called. Um, Marginal Utility School of Economics, which is completely different from the classical economics in which Marx grew up. Um, and these are people whose ideas of society um, largely come from the New Deal, uh, who accept the idea, sort of pluralists who accept the idea of many different interest groups competing for influence, whereas Marx wanted to abolish the distinctions between in- groups in the state and have all individuals and their groups represent the general interest. There'd be some, there'd be some sort of unity of them. Uh, so these are all things which really go against what Marx actually stood for. It's difficult for me to figure out. Well, it's not difficult for me to figure out. I understand why people do it. It's because, um, you know, people still still regard, understandably regard communism as bad. And so to call your, your opponent a communist uh, will make them sound real bad, alone calling them child molesters and whatever else we see in political polemics these days. Um, so I, I would say that's really, that's more of them. That's more of the way, and this is the way I close my book by describing Marx as an icon, uh, an image, uh, which has increasingly been shorn of actual content of Marx's ideas. And it's become this image on which people can project their favorable or hostile views, this, this screen. Um, and it seems to me that that's how it's being used today in contemporary American politics when um, Republicans denounce Democrats as Marxists. This just seems to me like sort of out of somebody who spent a lot of time studying Marx's life, his ideas. This just seems to me like not just out of this world, but out of this galaxy. <laughs> okay, so it's been a decade since you wrote the book, and you've had a ton of interest. Uh, you were on The Daily Show uh, after yes. the book came yes. out, which I saw uh, with John Stewart. Um, given all the interest in the book, what do you think um, is the actual level of interest in Marx today? Uh, not talking about you know political gamesmanship, um, but the actual yeah. interest um, in the academic community and in the popular imagination. Yeah, you know, I, I should, let, let me let me give you an example from my experience with being a professor at the University of Missouri, which may help here. Um, so we're really far from bicoastal America in this state. Um, and uh, for years, I taught what we, we call in, in um, academia capstone course. This was a senior seminar for history majors uh, based on a specific topic. And we would ask them to write essays on 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 they have to write a research paper based on this particular topic, and this was a way to um, to get them to show they'd actually learn something in being a history major. Um, and um, I, I taught a lot of these; uh, it was part of my job. And um, so I, I often taught one on Marx and his ideas in their nineteenth-century context. And I found that students were really interested, um, not necessarily in interpreting Marx. Just learning more about this figure about whom they knew very little, except that he was, you know, sort of like this boogeyman or that he was some sort. There was something going on there, and they were interested in learning about it um, and, 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 and seeing Marx in his context. Um, I also, and I think this is very helpful comparison, I also taught a similar senior seminar on the ideas of J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, 
which was, uh, you know, sort of someone from a very different intellectual universe. I did generally find the students like the one on Marx better, which a bit surprised me after the Lord of the Rings movies came out, you know. Mm, yeah, but, um, that is surprising. Uh, yeah, it did. There was a lot of interest in this. Um, and this was, these are, this was primarily among young people who um, had very little memory of the Cold War and it was in a different world. Um, and so that's what I'd say about that. Among, among older people, um, let's say uh, the seven years I spent that as an adult volunteer with the Boy Scouts, um, I did find that um, there's this vision of Marx as a boogeyman, as a bad guy, um, without really knowing a whole lot about what stood for, how it actually related to contemporary figures that was pretty prevalent as well. So for someone who wants to understand Marx better, let's say we've read your book now. Yes. And uh, what next? Uh, which of Marx's writings might you uh, recommend? Yeah. As, is it important to read Hegel? <laughs> because I came, uh, yeah, I came uh, out of here uh, wanting to read some Hegel. Yeah. So where do we go from here? Yeah, um, if, uh, I wish you good luck if you want to read Hegel. Uh, there's a famous, probably apocryphal quote Hegel is supposed to have said, there was only one person who understood me, and even he didn't really understand me. Um, Hegel is very difficult. Um, what I would say for people who want to so want to learn more about Marx, um, they should start by reading some of his classic works, things like the Communist Manifesto, um, particularly the 18th Premier, which is in some ways my personal favorite of all of Marx's writings, the 18th Premier of Louis, Louis Bonaparte about the coup d'etat of uh, Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, the nephew of the great Napoleon who seized power in France in 1851 and began calling himself Emperor Napoleon III. Uh, a wonderful, a wonderful piece of writing. Is that uh, if a you journalistic it, piece? Or, or It was designed as contemporary journalism, yes. Uh -huh. Okay. A brilliant piece of journalism. Um, if you really, if you know, you can go on and read a few other things, uh, the introduction to the critique of political economy, uh, the civil war in France. If you've really got a lot of time and patience, you could try volume one of Capital. Um, a lot of this stuff is now, it's either available in paperback or online at marxist.org, um, which is a big, uh, actually ironic for communism, a property rights dispute about who can put uh, Marxist right, the English translations of Marxist writings online. But um, a lot of that's available at marxist.org, uh, lots of cheap paperback editions of these things. If you're interested in this, you can go ahead and look at some of that stuff. And develop your own ideas about Marx. Um, there is a wonderful biography of Friedrich Engels, Marx's close friend, chief political disciple, um, and who I think really invented Marxism as a doctrine, uh, a phrase Marx never used about himself. It was Engels who was invented, who created this phrase um, called Marx's general, um, which I strongly recommend. Um, and that one um, by a British guy, just a second, I've got it up here in my book house. Let me give you the author. Um, Tristram Hunt, a uh, British academic, actually a Labour Party MP for a while. Uh, very good biography of Engels, uh, which um, very helpful for understanding Marx's ideas. Um, a lot of what we call Marxism, I think, should really be known as Engelsism, uh, because it was Engels who formulated the doctrines, often in ways that weren't quite so, not quite the way Marx himself thought about things. 
Um, so those are the things I would suggest people read if they want to get into this some more. Jonathan, this has been so much fun. Jonathan Sperber, author of Karl Marx, A 19th Century Life. Thank you. Pleasure being on here. Thanks a lot.